Happy 4th of July weekend. You guys got big barbecue plans the next couple of days? Okay, sounds like a boring couple of days, I guess. Um, well, let's just get on with this and you guys can go. Uh, let's pray and we'll start. Uh, Father, grateful, um, grateful that you call your family together as you do. Grateful um, for people who respond, for people who choose to come and take time on a Sunday morning to spend not only with you, but with each other, and to gather around your word, to celebrate who you are and what you've done, to hear the good news for us and for those around us, and to figure out what it means for us when we leave here today. So we pray that this morning, as we do all those things, that you would guide us, that you'd prepare us for the week ahead, no matter what it is we're up to. Pray that your word, as always, would sink in and become a part of who we are. Not just information, not just some details that we now know, but truly a transformative word that changes us from the inside out. And we pray that your spirit would guide us and do that work in us today. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So we're in a series this whole summer about prayer. What's the point of prayer? Uh, today will be in Exodus chapter 33, if you want to begin turning there in your Bibles. Uh, last week, we heard a conversation between God and a man named Moses. It happened 30 chapters before the chapter that we're going to read today. And that conversation we talked about last week, that was the first conversation between God and Moses, and it revealed so much. It told us all about God's compassionate care for Israel, for his family. They were slaves in Egypt. It revealed to us that God was going to use Moses to bring deliverance to Israel, even though it was clear that God would be the one doing the work. We learned that Moses wasn't a huge fan of that plan. We learned that Moses was a man who lacked personal ambition, but had this huge capacity for leadership. He was willing to stand up to powers greater than his own. He was willing to object to the creator of the universe. And then the final thing we learn in that story is we, get to, we learn the name of God. We learn the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that name Yahweh. Well, 30 chapters later in Exodus 33, we get another conversation between God and Moses. And this time we get to learn more about the nature and character of this God who we first met when he set his people free. So before we read, I, I do need to quickly summarize what's happened in the chapters between chapter three and chapter 33. Um, in short, God delivered. And in more ways than one, God delivered Pharaoh and the Egyptian army from the Egyptian, sorry, God delivered Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. His people were now free but they had to start a long and really hard journey through the desert to the land that God had promised them. Before that long journey began, God meets Moses up on a mountain and he delivers guidance about how they are to live as they journey through the desert and as they find their way to the promised land. And now we call it the law. It starts with the 10 commandments. Israel was chosen by God, not because there was anything special about them, but because God chose to choose them. And he chose them so that they would be a blessing to the nations around them. He chose them so that through them, the mercy and grace of God would be revealed to all people. That they were set apart to be a light to all the nations. But if they were going to stand out from the nations around them, they needed a path. They needed a way of life to follow. So that's the reason for the law. And it started with the Ten Commandments. God gave Israel this pattern for life 
so that they would be this blessing to their neighbors, so that God's goodness would be proclaimed through them to the world around them. God delivered the law to them through Moses, but he also gave Moses a lot of other instructions. He told Moses how to build the tabernacle, how to prepare that space, not only for worship and for sacrifice, but to prepare it for God's own presence because God had promised to be with them. Now, by the time we get to chapter 32, Moses had been up on that mountain with God for who knows how long. Nobody wants to answer in church, I know, because you're afraid you'll be wrong. It's actually, it's one of those answers that you know, I'm gonna say it, and you're gonna like, oh yeah, obviously, 40 days. 40 days, a good, solid biblical number. Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days, but think about that. Moses was gone for 40 days. It seemed to the people as if God was gone as well. So what did they do? Many of you know the story. They made a golden calf and began to worship it. Like God's family, now free from slavery, free to serve and worship the God of their ancestors, God's own people turned the image of a created thing into a lowercase g God. They made a golden cow the focus of their worship rather than the God who had just set them free. So Moses makes this plea to God on their behalf. Moses offers himself his own life as a sacrifice for what they've done. Exodus 32 says this, Moses went back to the Lord and said, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. This scene, this issue with the golden calf, it's not without consequences. A plague strikes God's people before he sets them on their way to the promised land. And now, from this point moving forward, the relationship between God and his people is gonna be different. So in Exodus 33, Moses meets God one more time on the mountain and they have a little define the relationship conversation. Gotta figure out how this is gonna work moving forward. So I'm gonna read to you the entire conversation between Moses and God and we're gonna see what this tells us about who God is, what God has done, who we are and what it means for us as we leave here today. So this is Exodus 33, starting in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. So really quickly, God always says, you have the people that I have brought out of Egypt. In this conversation, he starts, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Moses is your problem. These are your people now. Go up to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and others. And then in verse three, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people if I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And then skipping to verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know who you're gonna send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. 
And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses is never one to take yes for an answer. So he continues in verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first thing we notice when you read If you go home today, read Exodus 32 and 33 together. It's really clear that even though they were idolaters, the people did understand that without God's presence leading them, they were lost. Like they they simply would not survive. Like for all their wavering between faithfulness and disobedience, they are still a people who watched as God's might just delivered them from Egypt, the superpower of the day. They had seen God's full power on full display They wanted to see it again. Like you could make an argument, and listen, this is not a good reason, this is at least an excuse for the whole golden cow incident. Like after seeing such a mighty display of power, now both God and their leader Moses are MIA for 40 days. Like that's a pretty dramatic turn of events for the people. Like are God and Moses just gonna hang out up on that mountain forever? Have they forgotten about us? Are they just gonna leave us out here in the wilderness on our own? Like, will they ever come back? Have both God and Moses abandoned us? Listen, when we read this story, I think that this is one place I think we can relate, right? Like many of us have had real experience with God's power, like with God's incredible mercy and grace, pulled us out of the gutter, set us on the right path. And then for what feels like forever, it's like there's just nothing. Like he's there and then he's not. Like this is a terribly frustrating truth about God in the Old Testament. This happens time after time. Part of the problem now is us. Because we are a New Testament people who often live in an Old Testament relationship with God. So let me explain it. In the Old Testament, for much of their lives, Abraham, Moses, others, they're just dealing with the day-to-day drama of this life, just like we do. They were tending sheep, they were farming fields, dealing with interpersonal issues. And then on occasion, God drops in. And then for what must have felt like forever, there was nothing. Like two weeks ago, Sabrina shared a conversation between God and Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 15 and 17. Now, from what I can tell, there are at least four major conversations between God and Abraham in the book of Genesis. 
And apparently in between each of those conversations, do you know how much time passed? About 25 years. Like we read these stories in the Bible as if these revelations and encounters with God just happened one after the other. In actuality, years, sometimes a generation passes. Like it can sometimes feel like God is strangely distant in the Old Testament. The Israelites, they're not the only people throughout history who have felt that way. The question is always, what are God's people gonna do? Like in the seasons when it seems that God is distant, unsettlingly quiet, what will God's people do? Like, will we wait for him? Will we patiently wait, continuing to trust and obey as we wait? Will we continue to seek him? Will we look for him? Will we listen? Or will we quickly turn to idols? Will we quickly turn to other gods to guide us instead? Now listen, there was a reason for this distance between God and humans throughout the Old Testament. It's a difficult truth throughout the whole Old Testament. God could not be fully present with his people or they might be destroyed. Exodus 33 explains it listening into verse three. It says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and everybody say it together. (laughs) Usually when I have you read something together, it's a little more joyful. (laughs) That one is tough. I spent a while trying to understand the grammar and the language here. Um, I am pretty sure that, <laughs> that God is not saying, I don't know, like, I might destroy you. I might not. There's just no way of knowing. Like, I'm, I'm pretty confident that's not what's happening. It's not like God's decisions are arbitrary or that God is impetuous. This isn't a God who's uncertain about his own decisions. This is just reality. For sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God It's dangerous. Like look again, verse 18 through 20. Moses says to God, show me your glory. Give me the full revelation of who you are. And the Lord says, I will cause my what? Not my glory. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name. And then if you skip down, you cannot see my face, my full presence. For no one may see my full presence and continue to live. Moses wants God's glory. God says it's too dangerous for you. It's too dangerous for a broken human to come face to face with the reality of a holy God. A full revelation of the creator of the universe would overwhelm and consume us. That's hard. But y'all, I'm telling you, there is grace in this strange distance that God had to keep. One theologian said it like this. He says, the distance between God and human beings is structured into the created order for the purpose of preserving human freedom and life. Because for God to be fully present, God would be coercive. Faith would be turned into sight and humankind would have no choice but to believe. God's presence cannot be obvious there must be some ambiguity so that disbelief is at least possible. A sense of God's mystery must be preserved. And this story shows that even for Moses, there is mystery in the confrontation with God. 
Moses asks to come face to face with God's glory, but God knows that Moses can't handle it. So instead of giving Moses what he wants, he gives Moses what he needs. God shows Moses not his glory, but his goodness, his character, his nature. And I'm telling you the wisdom and the discipline of God to restrain himself. As much as we know God loved his people, to restrain himself, to not fully reveal himself. Yes, when we read it, when we experience it, it is so frustrating, but it is also a gift. It's evidence of his mercy and his grace. He does not want to overwhelm us. He does not want to consume us. He wants to live in relationship with us. So he allows us to make a choice, to choose to love him back. But like I said earlier, we are a New Testament people who are living in an Old Testament relationship. We are still often living as if that's how God is, as if God is far off and distant and silent. Y'all, I'm telling you, that's no longer true. Like there is good news because God has made himself known in the best possible way. He has revealed his goodness, his character, his nature in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like the mystery remains. Faith is still required. Disbelief and doubt is still possible, obviously. But because of Jesus, we can now come face to face with the Almighty without fear, without hesitation. Because in the face of holiness, sinners now are not destroyed. We are transformed. And we are made holy. We are made to be like him. And we no longer have to go to some specific mountain to find God. That curtain, that dividing wall that separated holy God from sinful humans, it was torn down, it was broken in two, destroyed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul can so confidently write this in Romans 8. He says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither fears for today, nor worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen? So why are we living as if God is so far away? Like the question that we have to ask ourselves today in the seasons when God seems to be unsettlingly quiet, are we ready to recognize that it is not God who's being distant? It's us. Like will we come to realize that we are a New Testament people who are still trying to have a relationship with an Old Testament God. God is not silent, y'all. We just stopped listening. Like we live in a time when much of the culture around us has just given up on waiting. They're not listening at all. They're not looking anymore. They no longer trust and obey. They've turned to idols and forgotten God altogether. Y'all, I'm telling you, historically, that never ends well for the people. Like this week, I hope you do have some barbecue and have some fun this week, right? This week we are celebrating. We are celebrating freedom and independence from tyranny and oppression. That is a good thing. We should celebrate. As Christians, we celebrate the freedom to worship and serve our God without government control, interference, or influence. That is a good thing, and we should celebrate. But even as we celebrate, we're mourning the fact that our culture, our nation, it no longer turns to God for answers. That we no longer believe that God must lead us if we are to survive. 
Freedom from tyranny has devolved into a fight for freedom from God. But I'm telling you, this turn away from God, it is not just a cultural or a national issue. The church itself is wavering in its faithfulness. Denominations, one after another, are abandoning the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Christ as their foundational beliefs. Over 10 years ago, this church left a denomination that had done just that. But this turn isn't only an issue for the church. In our homes, in the family, where is God? I am telling you, when the family stopped looking for comfort and hope and salvation in the Lord, that's when everything around us started to fall apart. That means that there's a solution to all this. But it doesn't begin the way that we might expect or the way we probably want. I think especially in our time, Christians are very easily tempted. Honestly, I believe we are manipulated into thinking that those in power those in elected or appointed office, that they are the only ones who can steer us back on the right track. Give some people the power to mandate trust and obedience in the Lord. We know, what does power do? And what does absolute power do? We know this, yet what do we spend all of our time doing and fighting over? Who are we gonna put in office? To make, the changing, to make the changes we need to put everything right. Like we know that broken humans with power can't always be trusted to use that power for our good. That's what July 4th is all about. That's why reformation will not begin. It does not begin in Austin or in Washington. I am convinced that if reformation and a return to the Lord is ever gonna happen in our nation or in our culture, it has to first start in the home. And until more and more families can proclaim the words of Joshua 24, things are going to continue to spiral out of control. Moses' disciple, Joshua, said this. He said, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites and the land you're now living. But as for me and my household, We will serve the Lord. The people of Israel recognized that without the Lord leading them, they would not survive. Do we? The kind of transformation in our relationship with God, this kind of transformation, it cannot be legislated. It has to be worked out with fear and trembling in the heart of every person and in the center of every family. And when more and more families make that their platform for reform, that's when change will happen. That's when more and more people will begin to turn toward the Lord. Really quickly, women and kids, uh, don't listen for a second. I'm serious, don't listen, it's not for you. Men, scripture tells us this is our job. This is why he blessed us with a wife and with children. He gave us a family to lead to him. The fact that the church today is led by women, which is a good thing because you know at this church we affirm the gifts of women to be used in leadership of the church. 
But the fact that the most faithful people in the church today are women means that the men, we're not doing our job. And I'm not preaching this at you. I am in this with you. Like as a pastor, I often reflect on the failures that I've made with my kids because I was afraid that overwhelming them with God would turn them into stereotypical pastor's kids. Which meant that as I was raising them, I didn't pray with them enough. I didn't read scripture with them enough. I'm trying to make that right. This is our job. This is why we are here. And if we can start to lead like that in the home, it'll make it a lot easier to lead like that in the workplace, in the community, in our towns, in our country, and around the world. When individuals turn to God, things will change around them. When husbands and wives pray together and guide their children toward God, things will change in the homes and on their streets. When churches are filled with people who are committed to truly knowing, serving, and loving the living Christ, communities and cities will be transformed not by legislated morality, but by the transforming and unrelenting love of Jesus Christ. So I have a challenge for you. If you're concerned that our culture, our nation, has turned away from the Lord, then I want to not invite you, I want to challenge you to set everything else aside for six weeks. To detox from trusting in broken human leaders to solve our problems and instead turn to Jesus. Seek his face, his goodness, his mercy, his glory. John 1.14 tells us that in Christ, even God's glory is no longer hidden from us because now God's power doesn't destroy us, it makes us more like him. So this is a challenge and it's a hard challenge. And this for, this for everybody, women and children, you should be listening now. Sorry, I told you to not listen, this for everybody. Um, it is a challenge, but I'm telling you this is a hard challenge for the next six weeks. I wanna challenge you to spend one full hour a day with the Lord. Now that can feel overwhelming maybe. Add up the amount of time you spend watching cable news and throw, scrolling through your social media feed. I did it. <laughs> I added up the amount of time. This is my job, and I learned I still have another hour that I can give to the Lord each day. Y'all, God is not silent. We have just stopped listening. So set, a time, set aside an hour a day for the next six weeks to spend with Jesus. Be consistent, be faithful, and listen. Now you can break it up 20 minutes, three times a day, whatever. And there are endless number of ways you can spend this time. You can spend this time in dedicated prayer. You can spend it reading scripture. You can find reading plans online. If you want a suggestion, reach out to any of the pastors or elders. We have resources for you. But one of our elders, Bill Ford, he is really like a model for this. Every day he reads scripture with his family and friends. I think he's doing like six Bible reading plans all at the same time. He won't stop inviting people to read the Bible with him. He and his wife, Anne-Marie, they've not only made it a commitment to read scripture with their kids, but to read scripture together. And not only to pray, but to pray together as husband and wife. So having done that for years, Bill has a ton of resources and he is happy to sit down and walk anyone through the process. How to use things like Right Now Media or the YouVersion Bible app, all things that you have free access to every day. During the pandemic, Sabrina created a series of videos walking us through how to practice spiritual formation. You can go to the website and you can watch those anytime. 
They're so good, one of her professors at Fuller Seminary asked if she could use them for a class. Our job is to equip and encourage you to do this. It's your responsibility to take it seriously. To go to Jesus, to ask him to now go before you, to set aside time to get to know him a little better. Because I'm convinced that a church that would take a challenge like this seriously, that's a church that's gonna change the community around it. And not by coercing that community to do what we say, but by revealing to them the love of the Savior who invites all of us to come and follow me. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. The messes we create for ourselves, if we think there's any way out other than you, we are, we are so wrong. So we pray that you would guide us, remind us of the truth. Show us that you are in front of us leading the way. The fact that Moses could only see God's back was a symbol that that's what we should be seeing. Your back because you are the one leading us forward. So we pray that you would help us to put you back in your rightful place. Starting in our lives, in our homes, in our church, and then trusting you with the rest. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.